right. Once again, my name is Pastor Ryan. Thank you for being here today. Uh, quick question. Just got to get it out of the way. Did everybody get enough to eat the past few days? Are you sure? Yeah. I know. It's such a good, it's such a, it's a cool holiday. So this, this weekend, obviously with the holiday coming up, uh, we just had, we're going to be talking about, talking about being thankful and being joyful. Right, and that's what's such a good weekend to do that on. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and op- open them up to Psalm 100. Psalm 100, we're going to read verses 1 to 5. If you have your iPhone, or your iPad, whatever, that's cool too, because that's actually where I use most of my uh, Bible reading is on my phone and my iPad. Psalm 100. Now what's cool about this chapter is in my Bible, the actual title of the chapter is Thankful Gratitude. Right? That's the idea behind it. The author wanted to convey a, ser- a sincere sense of, of being thankful, being joyful, just a profound, profound joy for everything that God had done. So Psalm 100, now, as we always do, let's just jump right in. Let's read verse 1. Let's see what it tells us. Psalm 100, verse 1. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Now this sentence, as you can see, is both an invitation, but it's also, uniquely, it's a command. It's a, it's a direct instruction. The author is telling people, directing the world, that now... Now is the time to shout for joy. Now is the time to raise our voices to proclaim the joy that we have because of what God has done. The author is saying every person, every single person has at least one thing, many of us, many, many things that we can be thankful for, that we feel blessed for that God has done. And now is the time to be thankful, to shout that out, shout that out loud. Now I've read that this particular psalm, Psalm 100, was frequently uh, recited by rabbis a long time ago as a call to worship to bring people to the sanctuary, to get their hearts and minds prepared. It's used for a lot of different scenarios, but one, it was also used before certain sacrificial ceremonies, and they did sacrifices for thanks as well. So it was a big deal, but the point was always to bring people to the right state of mind to um, shout out loud about their joy, because God is the reason that we are blessed. Now, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament idea, the Old Testament term uh, joy has a lot of meanings behind it, uh, a lot of things they were expected to have and things that you were unexpected that you got from God. And a lot of those things that are listed, they involve uh, happiness within your marriage, with your children, with military conquest, with a good uh, harvest season. It even talks about celebrating with wine. There's examples of joy being used when they received God's laws. When God actually gave them the laws, they were joyful about that. And they felt connected with him. So in the Old Testament, we see joy being applied to a lot of different situations, a lot of different things, and it had to do with the physical all the way up to the deeply spiritual. It was just how people felt. Now what's central to this idea, regardless of whether it's physical or spiritual, is that they're in a relationship with God. They are connected with God. It's a back and forth, right? So there's a lot of things that go into that, but that's essentially the core of it. Now in the New Testament... Joy is just as important, but as you can probably guess, it starts to focus in more on Jesus, right? And rightfully so. Now, one of the first mentions of joy in the New Testament actually comes from John the Baptist. It's in chapter 3, where he describes the coming Messiah. But before we read that, I want to tell you another story about John the Baptist. It's when he was a baby, when he was still in his mother's womb, and how he reacted when his mother, who was carrying him, heard that Mary was pregnant. And that's in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 43. Let's read that, and then we'll jump into the other one. Now, again, the setup is uh, John's mother, Elizabeth, she's pregnant with him, and she's about five months along. So she's five months pregnant with John the Baptist. And that's when her cousin Mary comes into the picture, and she lets Elizabeth know that she's now pregnant 
with Jesus. And this is what it says. Luke 1.41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now the word joy is not specifically in there. But have you ever heard anybody leap with sadness? Leap with like, eh, it's okay. Right? It doesn't happen. Why do people leap with joy, with happiness? They're overflowing with joy, right? And that was just as common then as it is now. So John, as a baby, this is what I think is incredible, five months still in the womb, and he was leaping with joy because of the good news of Jesus Christ when he heard that Mary was pregnant, right? And so the reason I make that point of telling it, this is the first recorded instance of John celebrating because the coming Jesus. He's here. Jesus is not born yet. He's not born yet, but yet him as an infant recognizes that already. Now let's jump forward to John chapter 3, and this is where John the Baptist and Jesus are now fully grown adults. Each have their own ministries. They're both being called by God, but those two paths that they've been called on are about to converge. They're about to meet, and when they do, this is John's response, and his, his response is remarkable. So John 3, 29 to 30, this is what it says. This is John talking. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. Now, obviously, John is using a metaphor here to, de to describe the bride, which is actually the church, which means all of us sitting here. We are the church. Jesus is the bridegroom, and that's what we today, typically today just call the groom. Now, but look how John describes himself. He's simply the friend who attends the groom. He's like the best man. That's his job, to attend to the groom, to help the people of the church, but he's only the helper. He makes it very clear he is not the focus. The groom is. But now the next part of this is why I shared this. John says he is filled with joy. He's filled with it. He's just complete, right? And I want to make a distinction here. There's the difference between having joy, like having joy, and being filled and complete, just through your bones, right, all the way through. And the Greek word that he used here is peplorotai, and it just and it means complete, but it means more than that. It means filled up, finished, done, just all the way through. And so to kind of help make a point, I want to come at this from a different angle. I want to talk about happiness uh, and being filled as a person the way John's referring to, but I want to do it in more modern-day terms. So there's actually four psychological levels of happiness, joy being complete. Uh, level one... Uh, level one happiness, joy, represents the fundamental drivers of life. Having your food, your shelter, your clothing, your basic needs. Now, these are all very self-centered, but in a good way. I mean, we all need food, clothing, right? All need that stuff. We have to have them. And getting each of those does bring us happiness to a degree, right? Like after you have a big meal, Thanksgiving's a great example. It feels great, right? You're like, oh, that was amazing, right? But what happens four, six, eight hours later? Get hungry again. It doesn't change. Like even getting nice clothes, having a house, that's great. But are you happy to your core and your soul with a nice pair of Nikes? No. It's very temporary. It's very superficial. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but that's not what the kind of happiness, the completeness that John is talking about. Now, the next level, level two happiness, involves being successful at work, in your personal life, even in sports and leisure. Right, this involves personal achievement. So, for instance, getting recognized at work by getting a promotion. 
That's awesome, right? You get the promotion. You can also be winning or playing a good game of golf, having a nice car, driving down, driving down the street, and people notice that nice, cool car, right? Or wearing the latest fashions, right? Stuff that gets you noticed. Now, on this level, level two, there is a little bit of competition, you'll notice, right? There are some winners and there's some losers. You're not looking necessarily to make people lose, but there's differences. So, for example, if you get the promotion at work, it means the other co coworkers don't get the promotion. You're not looking to squash anybody, but there is beginning levels of competition, right? And just like with level one, you can get, be happy. You can achieve some happiness. Getting that promotion, that's great, that's awesome. But would you say that you are complete in your soul? No, not usually, right? There's more to it. Now the next level, level three, is where you start to look outward from yourself. This is about serving others. This is where you use your skills, your talents, to try to do genuinely good. You're not looking so much as to win as to raise others up. And this is good stuff. This is where people deep down really start to look for purpose and meaning in their life. Right? That's the point. And there's lots of different ways people do this. They can do this through religion, through all the different kinds of stuff. But really, you're starting to search for true purpose. However, this is good, but even then, you're not usually truly filled. It's a step in the right direction. This is not what John is referring to. What John is referring to is level four. And this is about achieving completeness and ultimate truth. This is all-encompassing. It endures. It lasts. Most importantly, there is no expiration date on this, how it makes you feel. It fundamentally changes you because there is no longer any searching. And that's key. So let that sink in for a moment. Imagine, imagine finding something that is so profound, so deep, that changes you, that all the stuff that happens that we all have to deal with every day, going to work, paying the mortgage, paying the bills, just, you ever have the, the mental list, you're like, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, all the mental chatter in your head? All of it just melts away. Because you are complete. You may still have stuff to do, it's not the same anymore. You're different. You're complete. This is what John was talking about. He's filled up, and it doesn't go away. You feel that same way in a year, in 20 years, in 30 years. See, that's profound. That's what John's referring to. It's like the ultimate finish line. Levels one, two, three kind of slowly work their way up there, but they're not, that's not it. Level four is where it is. It's the completion of it. And John, he has this joy. He possesses it. It's within him. And he's complete. Now, and next he has this really powerful statement. It's in verse 30. Once he has this, he says, he must become greater, meaning Jesus, and I must become less. Meaning my job now is to fade into the background. It was never about me. I'm just here to help. But now the Messiah is on board. Here, I'm going to step back and let him do his thing. And that gives me such joy. Because the Messiah is actually here. Right? So that's a cool, cool thing. So let's get back to Psalm 100. Let's read verse 2. Verse 2, it tells us, Worship the Lord. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Now what I like about this verse is actually it's a blanket invitation to the world. Notice it doesn't say Jews only. It doesn't say Jews first, then Gentiles. Okay, how about all the Gentiles? Okay, now everybody. It doesn't say that. It says, everybody, come and worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. So this is a call for everybody to come and, and sing. 
And don't worry about whether you can carry a note. I cannot sing to save my life. But at the beginning of service, a little bit, I was in the back belting it out. As you guys were, right? We come together and we sing joyful. And that's what the author of the Psalms wants us to do. We're invited to sing. And the point of us to sing is because we're happy, we're joyful, we're thankful, we realize what God has done and we have a relationship with him, right? Now remember, everything God has done from sending the laws in the Old Testament to sending Jesus was about pulling us out of our sinful lives, making us something new, make us, bring us to a better relationship with him. And that is a fantastic thing. So if we step back and take a look at all that, we really do have a lot to be um, thankful for. Now on the other side of the coin, Think about it, what would it be like to not have anything to be thankful for, to not have hope, to not have joy, all right? Think about what, would, what, what it would be like to not know what's going to happen when you die. It would be a terrifying thing. Now, I, for one, I worked in healthcare, I worked in the ER, I flew in a helicopter. I have met people that were hours away from leaving this earth, and some of them had no idea what was going to happen. And that alone is a terrifying thought. What makes it worse, like pouring gasoline on the fire, is knowing how fast, how little time you have left, how fast things are going. That is terrifying. That is absolutely a terrifying feeling versus the other side of the coin where you, I've been with people on their last day and when they know where they're going, when they have true peace and contentment, it's actually quite beautiful. It really is. It's an amazing thing. You can feel it in the room. And I can tell you, doctors and nurses notice the difference. They can feel it as well. And that's that contentment from knowing in your heart who Jesus is and who you belong to, right? And so that's what the author of the psalm wants us to do, to sing about with joy, because we have that, because of everything God has done. Now, verse 3 reminds us even more of who we are and who created us. Verse 3 tells us, know, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Now what you can kind of infer from that is the author's really trying to be bold. He's just saying, we are his. Right? Know that the Lord is God. The reason he's so blunt is because he knows, he wants us to understand that God made us. He made us on purpose. We are his people. And because of that, we can have confidence in him and in our lives. Right? We shouldn't be egotistical, arrogant, or boastful, not better than you, but rather we have a solid foundation because we know God made us on purpose, with a reason, and he wants us to have a relationship with us. He has plans for us. And that means we should have confidence and have all the reason in the world to celebrate. And here's what's cool. Here's what's cool about this is we can be joyful, we can celebrate because God is our shepherd. What that means is we have a reason to continue to celebrate. It's not just a one-time thing. Like Thanksgiving's a great holiday. How many times a year does it happen? One. I mean, it's awesome, but it's only once, right? Having a shepherd means God watches over us continually. Not one day a year, but how many days a year? 365. Every year. Day in, day out. He watches over us. He leads us besides better pastures, cool waters. It's a constant process. We're part of that flock, and he watches over us during the day and also at night. There's never a time when the shepherd is not watching over his sheep. But let's be honest, we're human. We can sometimes lose sight of that, right? I mean, we're human after all. I, for one, there are days when I feel amazingly close to God. I feel his warmth. I just feel it. It's, just, it's just a wonderful feeling. 
And then there's other days, if I'm being perfectly honest, even as a pastor, there's days where I just feel distant. I feel like he's far away. I feel stretched. I feel just all, all kinds of stuff. Now, it feels that way. God is not distance, but distant, but he does feel that way. And in those times, that's when I need to remind myself that he is our shepherd. He is there for me. Even though he feels that way, he is not actually distant at all. Right? It feels like he took his eye off me. He's not. Right? We have no reason to feel that way. Here's a really good uh, real-life example of that. Uh, my kids are older now, but when they were younger, we taught them how to swim. If you're parents, you go through this too. You know, first you do right on the side of the pool. Then the floaties, they go a little farther, and then they go without the floaties. And there was a time when without the floaties, they'd get out there about three, four, five feet, and they're not even touching, and they're patting. They're like, yes! They're trying to look, look, Dad! And they're so proud, so proud. And that is cool. That is a big moment, right? Having a great time. Then they get a little gutsy, and they go another two or three feet, and another two or three feet. And then suddenly, Dad's really far away. Oh, my gosh. And the water's really deep, and then what? They just freak freak out mode engaged. Even though they felt scared, they felt like the water's too deep, Dad's too far, they were never too far. I could reach them in an instant. That was how they felt. I was always there watching over them, right? That's how it happens. But even as an adult, the same thing happens to us. Believe it or not, as adults, we still have unrational fears sometimes, right? We still blow things out of proportion sometimes, right? We are the same. Even though we're adults, we tend to think that that doesn't happen. That is not true. It absolutely still happens. We're humans, right? But we always need to remember that God is there for us. He's always watching over us as uh, our shepherd. Even though it feels like we're in deep water, like it's too deep for him, it's not. It feels like we're too far from shore, we're not too far from shore. God is always there. And so the author of Psalm 100 wants us to know, always be reminded that we are God's. He made us. He is there for us. Now there's a really cool story of Jesus and the disciples when they're on a boat and they go out in the water and the storm comes up. It's in Matthew 18. But now a little little, uh, information before we start. Remember, the disciples were fishermen. They weren't new to being in a boat. They weren't new to being in a storm in a boat. Right? They'd been on this lake. They'd been out there before. But in this story, uh, they go out in the boat, and they go out there pretty far, and eventually a storm comes up. And then the wind is blowing. The, wind, the waves are big enough that the disciples, who are plenty experienced, generally start to get scared. I mean, scared. Right? And then it tells us the disciples look to Jesus. Anybody remember what Jesus is doing? The dude is napping. I mean, talk about someone who can power nap in a storm. That's impressive, right? But he was sleeping. And when I was a kid, I remember when I first reading that, hearing about the story, I'm like, is Jesus out of touch? Does he just like clock out some days? How would he not be nervous about that? Well, the reason Jesus wasn't nervous is because he is who he said he is. He is the Messiah. He knew all along there was never, ever anything to worry about. And so when the disciples wake him up, like, Jesus, don't you care? Look at this. What does Jesus do? He stands up and he says, stop. The wind stopped, the waves stopped. And it's calm. And then he goes back to sleep. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But the point is, and we could have, the point is, just like us, the disciples lost sight of all of that. They're human, and Jesus didn't get on them. They're human. But he brought them back and said, you have nothing to fear. I'm with you. 
And so that's what the author of the psalm wants us to know. We are going to get scared. It happens. But turn back to God. Right? Listen to him. He'll be there for you. We can always take comfort in that. And what's really beautiful about that, that story, is that in our relationship with God, he's with us on the calm days. He's with us on the stormy days, no matter what. And it even gets better because of Jesus, because not only is Jesus our shepherd, like for protecting and guiding, but he's also our redeemer. The reason he came to this earth is to pay our debts, to take care of our sins so we could become something new, something better. So I want to share something from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if, if anyone is in Christ, the new has come. The old is gone, the new is here. We're a new creation. So with the addition of Jesus, we literally become something new. We are different. We are not the same. So not only does he provide a light for a path and give us a future, he transforms us into something new. We're made clean. Now let's jump back to Psalm 100 and let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 tells us, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. So like we said with some of the previous verses in Psalm 100, this is just as much a command as it is an invitation. It is for all people. And as we approach God's gates, God's gates, we're to be thankful and joyful first off because we're allowed to do so. Right? We know, if you guys remember from our study of the book of Exodus or any of the history with the Israelites, there was a very, very steep price to be paid for anyone that went into the Holy, holy of Holies when they weren't supposed to, right? If anyone touched the Ark of the Covenant when they weren't supposed to, you know what happened? Anybody know? You died. Instantly. You were dead. That was their way of life. That is what they understood. Now, that seems foreign and that seems strange to us. So not, what I'm about to tell you initially is going to sound really weird, but I want you to go with me. You know each one of you could walk up here and you can touch this. You can touch this cost. And what will happen to you? Nothing. And that sounds a little weird for me to point that out. But 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, that's exactly what the Israelites knew. There were areas of that temple you do not go into or you will pay with your life. See, that is enormous. That is huge. All right, does anybody have a job if there's an area that you walk into you're going to be instantly killed? Okay, someone may do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What if that was your church? See, what if that was your church? See, that was their world. That's how they understood things. And that's why Jesus coming into the picture changed things fundamentally. Everything was changed. He knocked down that wall. Literally, when he died, the temple curtain tore in two. And that separation was no longer there. He paid our debts. That's what, mean, that's what makes it now that you guys can walk up here and there is no fear of anything. So again, today, we have no concept. It doesn't even make sense to us. But back then, that was their world. And Jesus changed that. What was cut off is now wide open. So that's why we can approach God's gates, go into his courts, and sing loudly and pray. And that's why the author is saying, you don't realize it. You have so much to be thankful for and worship and, and have joy. That's awesome. Now, there's also something also that's different because of Jesus. When Jesus taught the disciples and others back then how to pray, he told them to not do it out in public. You guys remember why? Because people back then 
We're getting showy about it. People intentionally go to the street corners and they do it loud, these, these long, fancy words, sanctification, supplication, all this stuff to be seen. And people are like, wow, he's praying a long time. That's amazing. He must be really good at it. And they did it to glorify themselves. That's what they did. They want to raise themselves up. So Jesus says, don't do that. Do the exact opposite. Go up into your own house. Shut your door. Go into your bedroom. Shut the door. Close the blinds and simply pray to your Father in heaven right from your heart. That's what he told his people to do. But now what this is saying is because we are true followers of Jesus Christ, because we're followers of God, we can approach God's gates and we are to sing joyfully together. Because it's not about us. Like this morning is a great example. When we were singing at the start of the service, those are awesome songs, right? No one was here going, look at me, look how good I'm doing, right? You're all doing what? You were singing out loud from your heart, and you meant it. And that's what the psalm, author of this psalm wants us to do, to truly worship God. It's a beautiful thing, and that's a call out to the whole world, not just us, but to the world. Now in our final verse, Psalm 100, verse 5, this is what it says. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. There's a whole lot I could do with this. We could be here for a while. There's a lot of applications. But what I want to do is I want to look at this from the perspective of the author who wrote this a couple thousand years ago. Good piece of advice. Whenever you're studying the Bible, whenever you're reading something, don't first go, what does this mean to me? You know, 2022, we live in a nice town where people come to vacation. This was written, most of the stuff was written on the other side of the world, a couple thousand years ago, what was happening in their world? What was it like to them? What did they want to convey, convey to us, right? Back then, when the author wrote this, uh, polytheism, worshiping different gods, was the norm. Like today, we, if I say Greek mythology, Roman mythology, that means what? Stuff people like a long time ago measure, we all know it's not real, blah, blah, blah. It was not mythology at one point in history. None of it was. It was all very, very real. And what's really interesting is if you really start to look at some of the stories, the way the, the Greek gods, the Roman gods behaved, they were awful. They had arguments, they got angry, they showed favoritism, they slept around, they stole, they, they did all kinds of stuff. They committed acts of violence, they could be cruel, and this is why this matters. If you were a person back then, genuinely searching for the truth. Remember we talked about the levels of happiness one through four and each one progressed. If you got to three and four and you were trying to feel fully, just filled to the brim, true happiness, you would not find it with the Greek and Roman religions or any other religions. Why? How do their gods behave? Just like us. They're awful. It's like a Days of Our Lives episode. I mean, really, go back to it, Google it and read what they did. They did all kinds of awful stuff. That's just how they did and that was their world. Remember, this wasn't something, this wasn't mythology that some distant re, uh, people did. This is what the kings, the queens, the ruling class, this is what average people, this is how they worship. This was it. The worship of the one true God that we have now was the, mind, was the oddball out. There were, there were monuments, there were synagogues, there were all kinds of temples to these other gods. That was the norm. That's how they did that. And what's, what's, um, what's really sad is um, within the um, ancient Greeks, I'm sorry, the ancient Egyptians, you know, have the pyramids to the pharaohs, and that was their death. So that was the, the, the pinnacle, the, the pharaohs, the people who had the most money. 
people, the class just under that could afford smaller synagogues, smaller temples, statues and stuff like that. They didn't last through time. But what happened to the people just under that? They couldn't afford that. So they made little plaques, even smaller statues. And it was a way to try to be noticed by the gods. But what did the poor people do when you couldn't afford any of that? You know what they did? They would sneak in and they would etch their names on the back of other people's statues, on the back of their plaques, just as a way to try to get noticed by the gods. See, what's sad about those religions, and this is, what, this is how you know it's false. It was just written by humans because it leaves out so many people. It doesn't make sense when you get down to it. And so that, that was a desperate attempt by people to get noticed by somebody, anybody. Hopefully the gods would notice it. And what the author of Psalm 100 wants us to know is that was the norm. That was the world back then. For us, it's mythology. It happened thousands of years ago. This was it. What he's saying is our God, the one true God, is the exact opposite of that. Our one true God does not show favoritism. You have hope. He loves you. He knows who you are. His love endures forever. He is your shepherd. So in that environment, it's so much a more profound message. It means so much more. And that's why I say when you read this stuff, try to go back to who wrote it, what kind of environment were they in. Right? Our God doesn't show favor. Another thing is, you know, they used to give so many gifts to the gods. Like our, our money does nothing in heaven. You know that, right? But they didn't. There's always kind of stuff. God doesn't need our money. He wants us to show kindness to others. And our God, his love endures forever. And a good way to think about that forever is imagine the longest road you could ever imagine. Right? Or, or more so, imagine if we could take a rope tie it to this earth, and we go to the most distant galaxy in the universe. Right? That'd still be mind-bogglingly long, right? It still wouldn't be forever. What the author wants us to know is God's love endures forever. There is no end. And that's profound. That's huge. Right? His love, his patience endures forever. When we behave badly and we go off course, when we get pulled away, we have our ups and downs, God's love endures forever. It doesn't change. He is always there. He loves us. He has a plan for us. And just to get, when you go home later, just to kind of help solidify how cool that is, read a little bit about some of the Roman gods and the Greek gods, what they did. doesn't matter what their name was. Look at some of the stuff they did. It's awful. Again, it's like days of our lives. So-and-so doesn't trust this person. They're always, they're just, it's a mess. And he wants us to understand that was real. That's how it was. And then now there's our God. That's why it's so important. That's why we have so much reason to celebrate and sing. In his final statement, he says, God's faithfulness endures through all generations. This means God is faithful not just in biblical times back then, but today as well. It'll be the same for your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. The other reason the, other reason the author wants us to celebrate publicly, to do this in the right way, is so that our own children see it from us. They see what we actually believe, what gives us joy, what we're happy about. There's nothing better than your own children seeing it in action. I mean, I can tell my kids all I want, blah, 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 but it's nothing compares to them actually seeing me do it. Coming here, right? and my kids come to the church, they see how people sing. They see all the stuff we do. They saw the picture of the little girl in Guatemala. And that is such a cool message because we, like I tell them, we actually believe this. 
We, and we live this out. And that, that is what he wants. That's what the author wants us to know. Live this out. Do that. And it will continue through generations. Because then it's personal. It's real. It's tangible. It means something. So now that we've come to the end of the teaching today, here's what I want everyone to take from this. This weekend, this past holiday that we had, uh, because of what it represents, is a really cool thing. I mean, our nation took the time to make one particular holiday, Thanksgiving, a national holiday, right? And it's all about what? Being thankful. And that's, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. That's smart. It's genuinely, genuinely good. Where we spend time together, we eat together, we come back together, Right? What the author of Psalm 100 wants us to do is take that feeling, that thing that happens one day a week, and have it for our whole life. And feel loved and blessed and happy because of what God has done, because of our relationship. So it's not just a one-day thing. He wants it baked down into our bones and just who we are. And you know we're going to have good days, and you know we're going to have bad days. But he wants us to just understand, even in those bad days, we still have reason to celebrate. We still have reason to have joy. And if we have, this is what's cool, if we have joy, if we celebrate in the good days and the bad days, and it's just part of who we are, people around us who don't know Jesus Christ will come to see that. And that will draw them to him. Think of the people back in, like we were talking about in, in ancient Egypt. They're the poor people that had to try to scribble their names. Like Basically, it's graffiti on the back of other people's statues and plaques to the gods. Think if the true religion that we have now was alive back in and they saw that. How much more of a draw would that be for them to give them hope? Right? How much more would that be for the people today to have hope and realize God loves them? So this is, this is the main message, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the reason we have hope. That's the good news the world needs to hear. We need to hear it in our good times. We need to hear it in our bad times. So if anyone here today has not accepted Jesus into your life, we always want to give you that opportunity. We want to make his name known. In a minute, we're going to pray. And when I do, all you have to do is repeat the words I say. You can do it quietly, right to yourself. No one has to know what you do is between you and God. We're not going to ask you. There's no test. Okay? But we're also going to pray for strength for everybody here, that we remain true to our Lord, and that also we're thankful for everything he's done. Okay? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins, and I believe that you raised him from the dead. Today, I ask Jesus to come into my life and to make me new. I ask him to forgive me, to save me, and to guide my steps for the rest of my life. Father, today, we, as a church, we pray for strength to endure all trials. May everything we go through, both good and bad, may it strengthen our faith and our resolve, and may we always lean on you. Father, we pray for all people to come to know you and to place their trust in you. It is only through you and the saving grace of your Son that we have hope. And Father, we thank you. We want to take the time to say our thanks for everything that you've given us. We want to say thank you for what you've done for our church. Most of all, we say thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, because it is due to him that we truly have hope and we have joy. And it's his, in his name that we ask all these things. Amen.